0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today uh, is Saturday, uh, March 18, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire Report. We'll feature dispatches on the continuing police killings of African Americans in the United States from Tennessee to Virginia. The elections are being held this weekend in the West African state of the Federal Republic Of Nigeria. There have been reports of a polio outbreak in Burundi and an announcement has been made that another transitional government will be appointed in the Republic of Sudan. In the second and third hours we will continue our focus on International Women's History Month. We are looking back on the lifetimes and contributions of artists Ruby Elsie and Billie Holiday. These and other features will be brought to you During the course of our program, so stay tuned. I will take a musical interlude uh, with Letta Mbulu uh, from the Republic of South Africa. Let's listen in. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal. Welcome back. Uh, You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was uh, the music of Leta Mbulu uh, from uh, the Republic of South Africa, and uh, Leto Mbulu is a South African uh, jazz singer uh, who has been active uh, since the 1960s. And uh, of course, uh, she has had many recordings, uh, appearances uh, in films, uh, such as uh, The Warm December uh, with Sydney, uh Poitier. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. We'd also like to mention uh, that uh, just this last past week, uh, South Africa lost a pioneering uh, jazz singer, Gloria Bosman, and uh, uh, smooth-voiced South African jazz musician Gloria Bosman uh, has been lauded uh, for her contributions to the country's uh, music industry in a career spanning more than two decades. Bossman passed away just this last past Tuesday following a short illness, her family announced. uh, After a short illness, she transcended peacefully at her home, surrounded by family, the family said in a statement. Gloria had devoted her life uh, not just to her family but to her music. She was loved and adored uh, by many here in South Africa and beyond its borders. The Soweto-born Bossman was praised uh, for her soothing silky vocals and versatility in crossing over to various music genres. Uh, South Africa's ruling African National Congress Party paid tribute <clears throat> to Bossman, uh, saying the country's music industry will be poor uh, without her. Gloria Bossman belongs to a generation of women musical greats who refused to submit to patriarchal stereotypes in a male-dominated industry. She was a fiery and militant revolutionary. the creative uh, sense of the term and uh, in our next um, upcoming uh, pan-african journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, we will have of course more information on the lifetimes and contributions and the transition uh, of Gloria Bosman in the Republic of South Africa (laughs) and uh, right now we want to move into our pan-african Newswise segment and these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire, the Memphis police supervisor who was on scene when Tyree Nichols was beaten to death uh, by officers retired uh, with his benefits the day before a hearing to fire him, according to documents filed to revoke his law enforcement certification. Lieutenant Dwayne Smith was identified uh, yesterday in records obtained by media outlets as the officer that official said earlier this month had retired before his termination hearing. Some Memphis City Council members were upset an officer was allowed to retire before steps uh, could be taken to fire them, including the council's vice chairman, J.B. Smiley, Jr., who said it didn't seem fair that the then-unidentified officer could keep pensions and other benefits. I just don't like the fact that his parents are paying this officer to go on and live And that's troubling, Smiley said. The attorney uh, for Nichols' uh, family uh, said the department should not have let Smith, quote, cowardly sidestep the consequences of his actions and retire after 25 years. Quote, we call for the Memphis police and officials to do everything in their power to hold Lieutenant Smith and all those involved fully accountable. Attorney Ben Crump said seven other Memphis police officers were fired, After Nichols died following a traffic stop on January 7th, and five of them are charged with second-degree murder, Smith is not charged in Nichols' death. Uh, Nichols, uh, 29, was pulled roughly from his car as an officer threatened to shock him with a taser. He ran but was chased down. Video showed five officers held him down and repeatedly struck him with their fists, boots, and batons as he screamed uh, for help and for his mother. The decertification documents against Lieutenant Smith reveal additional details about his actions that night. Smith heard Nichols say, I can't breathe, as he was propped up against a squad car failed to get him medical care or remove his handcuffs, according to the report. Smith also didn't get reports from other officers about using force and told Nichols' family he was driving under the influence, even though there was no information to support Such an allegation, the documents indicated. Investigators said Smith decided without evidence that Nichols was on drugs or drunk, and video captured him telling Nichols, you done took something, unquote, when he arrived at the scene. Additionally, Smith did not wear his body camera, violating police departmental policy. His actions were captured on the body cameras of other officers, documents said. The U.S. Department of Justice is currently reviewing the Memphis Police Department policies on the use of force, de-escalation strategies, and specialized units in response to Nichols' death. And in another case, uh, also involving uh, the authorities in Memphis, Tennessee, the family of an African-American man who died while in Memphis jail on Friday called on authorities to identify the correctional officers involved in the altercation that killed him. and and to hold them accountable. Gershon Freeman, uh, who was 33 years old, died last October the 2nd, at the Shelby County, Tennessee jail after being beaten by guards and held prone on the ground with a knee on his back for more than five minutes while handcuffed. Video of the incident uh, was made public earlier this month, uh, more than five months after his death. The family is still seeking answers and justice. His mother, Kimberly Freeman, said at a press conference outside the county jail where her son was held, she said that, quote, I want justice for my son, but I also want to know who are the people that murdered my son. They have blood on their hands, she said. The case has garnered more national attention since the January 7th beating death of another African-American man, Tyree Nichols, who was 29 years old, by the Memphis police officers who are now charged with murder. The Shelby County Sheriff's Office has said it would take no action against officers involved in the Freeman case until investigations are completed, local media reported. The video clips uh, made public were taken out of context and failed to include the erratic and violent behavior that led to Freeman being restrained. Sheriff Floyd Bonner said the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation is investigating the incident, while the Shelby County District Attorney Office handed the case over to the Nashville District Attorney Office to avoid a conflict of interest. The Nashville District Attorney did not immediately respond to a request for comment. And in another case, a video from a state mental hospital shows an African-American Virginia man who was handcuffed and shackled, being pinned to the ground by seven deputies, who are now facing second degree murder charges in his death, according to relatives of the man and their attorneys who viewed the footage uh, just two days ago. Three people employed by the hospital have also been charged. Speaking at a news conference shortly after watching the video with a local prosecutor, the family and attorneys condemned the brutal treatment. They said Irvo Aciono, 28, was subjected to, first at a local jail and then at the state hospital where authorities say he died March 6th during the admissions process. They called on the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene in the case, saying Orteano's constitutional rights were clearly violated. What I saw today was heartbreaking, America. It was disturbing. It was traumatic. My son was tortured, said Orteano's mother, Caroline Uko. Orteano's case marks the latest example of a black man in custody death uh, that has law enforcement under scrutiny across the united states it follows the fatal beating of tyree nichols in memphis tennessee earlier this year and comes nearly three years after the killing of george floyd in police custody in minneapolis it is truly shocking that nearly three years after the brutal killing of george floyd by police another family is grieving a loved one who was alleged who allegedly died in nearly the exact same manner, being pinned down by police officers for 12 agonizing minutes. Prudy, another attorney for the Otieno's family, said at the news conference that the video showed all seven of the deputies now facing charges, pushing down on Otieno, who was in handcuffs and leg irons. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Nigeria, millions of people voted earlier today to elect state governors but faced intimidation and violence in some cities amid heightened tensions following a disputed presidential election in Africa's most populous state uh, last month. New governors were being chosen for 28 of Nigeria's 36 states as the political opposition continues to reject the victory of President-elect Bola Tinubu who belongs to the ruling af All Progressives Progressive Congress Party. The performance of the Independent National Electoral Commission, quote, has improved considerably compared to the February 25th elections, but balance has been more intense across the country, unquote, said Idiot Hassan, head of the Center for Democracy and Development, Nigeria's largest democracy-focused organization. Local observer group, Y-I-A-G-A Africa said it found several instances in which voters were intimidated and prevented from voting unless they agreed to cast their ballots for certain political parties among the places it visited was Lego State where the president elect's party is seeking to retain the governor's office the all Progressives Congress lost the state in last month's presidential and legislative elections and in other news Health officials in Burundi have declared an outbreak of polio linked to the vaccine, the first time the paralytic disease has been detected in the East African country for more than three decades. Polio has been diagnosed in an unvaccinated four-year-old child in the western part of the country and in two other children who were contacts of the child. Authorities in Burundi confirmed in a statement yesterday, Officials also found traces of the virus in sewage samples confirming the circulation of polio. The virus that sickened the children was found in a mutated strain of polio that initially came from an oral vaccine. The Burundi government declared the polio outbreak to be a national public health emergency and plans to start an immunization campaign within weeks aimed at protecting all children up to the age of seven. And uh, finally, In uh, the Republic of Sudan, the new Sudanese government will be formed in April, said the Forces for Freedom and Change in a press conference held two days ago in the capital of Khartoum. The civilian and military signatories of the political framework agreement on Wednesday held a meeting to discuss the slow-moving political process to restore a civilian-led transition in Sudan and took a number of decisions. Several leaders of the Coalition of the December Revolution's forces held a press conference to brief Sudanese about the steps agreed upon in this meeting, which was attended by the facilitators of the trilateral mechanisms and the European Union and Quad Ambassadors who support the process. Quote, a final agreement will be signed and the structures of the transitional authority will be formed during the holy month of Ramadan. Taha Usman, a member of the FFC Negotiating Team, told reporters in the press conference, Ramadan will begin on March the 23rd. Usman uh, further added uh, that the timetable for the next steps will be announced once it is agreed upon in a meeting to be held on Sunday. In line with the framework agreement of December 5th of 2022, the parties to the political process held three of five conferences to discuss issues that require a national consensus. For the two others, one related to justice and transitional justice is taking place currently, while the last, which deals with security reforms, will be the last to uh, be discussed. Now, while this announcement that uh, was made uh, in the last several days of Sudan in other news, 11 people were wounded, including a protester rammed by a police car. That's according to an independent medical group following an anti-coup protest in Khartoum yesterday. The neighborhood groups of the resistance committees on Thursday announced and organized an organized and unannounced demonstration against the military ruler. The youth groups in Abdurman, uh, the twin city of Khartoum, organized a protest to reach the presidential palace the headquarters of the military-led Sovereign Council. A similar protest was also organized by the resistance group in the Boreen neighborhood in eastern Khartoum City. But the security forces closed the bridge, leading to the presidency from Abdurman, and used uh, tear gas to disperse the protesters. In Khartoum City, the security forces were also deployed to prevent the youth groups from reaching the, quote, strategic areas, unquote, in the capital. Eleven incidents were recorded, including a vehicle-ramming attack by regular forces. The situation of the assaulted protester is unstable as a result of a pulmonary hemorrhage that requires surgical intervention. The Pro-Democracy Medical Group further reported that another protester was injured in the face with a tear gas canister that fractured his jaw. The statement underscored that the police fired tear gas canisters directly at the protesters. In line with the framework agreement, the security forces should end the use of violence against protesters to create a conducive environment for the ongoing political process to restore a civilian government. On February 28th, a police officer was shot dead. A police officer shot dead a protester in Eastern Khartoum. Uh, but With that, though, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Zone. In concluding this segment of our program we want to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people throughout the continent and the world uh, the press agency was founded in january of 1998 just then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers uh, magazines journals research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Saturday, uh, March the 18th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And of course, uh, these programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links on the emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, the links can also uh, be shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. there. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Detroit's own, the Motown sound, uh, Martha and the Vandellas. With nowhere to run, uh, nowhere to hide, and uh, there is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, and we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday evening, March the 18th, uh, 2023, and uh, we'd like to welcome All of our listeners, uh, back uh, to uh, this program. Uh, March is uh, International Women's History Month, and uh, we're going to feature a audio documentary on the legendary Ruby Elsie, from uh, the Southern United States African American uh, vocalists uh, who made uh, tremendous strides uh, in popular culture uh, during uh, the early uh, decades of the 20th century. Let's listen uh, to this report on uh, Ruby Elsie.
2: This program is based upon the book Black Diva of the 30s, The Life of Ruby Elsie by David E. Weaver, published by the University Press of Mississippi. Archival recordings for this program were also provided by Mr. Weaver.
3: George Gershwin Memorial Concert. In this, the starlit setting of
4: the Hollywood Bowl, thousands of music lovers have gathered to honor the memory of this famous American
2: composer. The world's great artists who have for many seasons past received tribute here, tonight join this vast audience to pay tribute.
1: The tribute of friendship,
2: appreciation, and of admiration for one man, George Gershwin. On September 8, 1937, a throng of people estimated at 22,000 pushed up Highland Avenue and streamed into the Hollywood Bowl, causing a traffic jam which brought traffic to a crawl in all directions. That crowd, plus scores more listening on CBS, affiliates in Canada, and around the world on shortwave, had gathered to honor the memory of George Gershwin, who had died two months earlier at the age of 38 after emergency surgery for a brain tumor. Among those performers on hand for the Gershwin Memorial Concert were Anne Brown, Todd Duncan, and Ruby Elsie, Gershwin's hand-picked choices for the roles of Bess, Porgy, and Serena in the original production of Porgy and Bess.
5: And now the 40 members of the Hall Johnson Choir are being applauded as they take their places on the stage. This unusual musical organization is perhaps the best-known Negro choir in America today. They have traveled extensively over the United States and Europe, and have worked in motion pictures. The choir is arranged in semicircle in front of the orchestra and will be heard with the principals of the original New York production of Foggy and Bess, who were brought to Hollywood especially for this concert. Ruby Elsie sings, My Man's Gone Now.
2: You're hearing one of the few surviving recordings of Ruby Elsie singing My Man's Gone Now, a performance at the 1937 Memorial Tribute to George Gershwin, broadcast on CBS Radio barely two months after Gershwin's death from a brain tumor. would live but six more years before she, too, would be gone. She was preparing for her opera debut in Verdi's Aida when she died suddenly in a Detroit hospital after surgery to remove a benign tumor. She was 35. What she could have gone on to accomplish is pure speculation, but what she achieved in her brief life was nothing short of miraculous. During those six years, she would perform in concert halls and nightclubs from coast to coast, be a headliner at Harlem's Apollo Theater, perform on NBC's Town Hall Tonight with host Fred Allen, and even perform for the Roosevelt's in the White House. After her performance in the film Birth of the Blues with Bing Crosby and Mary Martin, critics would say, Ruby Elsie sings St. Louis Blues like an angel from heaven. Ruby Elsie's splendid singing lifts the sequence far above the rest of a routine musical comedy. In this cast is Ruby Elsie, whose rendition of St. Louis Blues will be remembered as long as the song will live. In November 1941, Ruby appeared on a nationwide broadcast from Hollywood to promote Birth of the Blues. Bing Crosby introduced her.
5: Back in 1914, a couple of years before the original Dixieland Jazz Band gave New York the hot foot, a man down in Memphis was committing an assortment of notes to paper, possibly as blue a collection of chords, cadenzas, and cacophony as the breathless public has ever heard. The man's name was W.C. Handy, and he enjoys the notable distinction of being the first man ever to put blues music on paper. Though
4: it wasn't his first blues tune, it was, and I guess it still is by far his greatest. We're privileged in our picture to have a truly great artist give this tune the kind of a performance that it
2: deserves Ruby Elzey is with us again tonight to sing St. Louis blues Success. Crosby signed Ruby to the agency headed by his brother to represent her for future film work. After all of this praise for her remarkable abilities, it would be nearly 60 years before the spotlight would once again shine on this talented singer and performer. But who was Ruby Elsie? What was she like? And how in the early 1920s does a young black woman who spends her days helping her mama with washing and ironing for well-to-do white families, working in the garden, tending to her brothers and sisters, and dreaming of a singing career, escape the bonds of Jim Crow and get from Pontotoc, Mississippi to stages in Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York City? Much of Ruby's strength and determination to, quote, sing in a big hall before a large group of people came from her mother, Emma, who had a, quote, iron will, boundless faith, and an almost superhuman capacity for hard work. Ruby saw what her mother endured to get them through rough times, that in the face of difficult obstacles, she worked harder and became more determined. So when her mother told her, Ruby. If being a singer is what you really want to do, then just keep praying and someday God will open the door for you to do it. That was the glimmer of hope Ruby needed. At the same time Ruby was dreaming of singing in a big hall, George Gershwin was developing the musical voice which would come to be loved by millions. As a youngster, George Gershwin was a tough kid who, as they might have said at the time, took nothing off a nobody. Yet a few notes of music floating out of an open window was enough to grab young George's attention, transforming him from a young street smart kid to a boy totally enraptured by music. It was as if George Gershwin and Ruby Elsie with, by most estimates, absolutely no chance of ever crossing paths, were being guided toward an intersection where their lives were destined to become permanently intertwined. George began music lessons in 1911 when he was 13 years old. By the time he was 15, he'd left school to become a Tin Pan Alley song plugger, all the while working to get his own music heard. At the same time, Ruby Elsie's musical talents were also developing, but in a completely different setting. Ruby was the first child of Emma and Charles Elsie, born in the small northern Mississippi town of Pontotoc. Emma sang soprano in the choir at McDonald Methodist Church. It wouldn't be long before Ruby would display her incredible gift in that small southern town. On a spring day in 1912, the choir had begun a hymn when suddenly, a child's voice floated above all the others. Four-year-old Ruby was singing her heart out from the front pew. The congregation chuckled at first, but their laughter quickly subsided as they realized that the youngster had a voice with power and sweetness far beyond her years. By the end of the hymn, applause and shouts of hallelujah rang out. Ruby had made her debut. I know the Lord done laid his
6: hands on me.
2: Ruby's life was typical for the black residents of the South. Her daddy cooked meals at a local mill, while her mama taught five grades at the Potatac Colored School, worked in the cotton fields from the time school let out at noon until sunset. Then, after feeding her family and getting them to bed, Emma did laundry for several local white families into the wee hours of the morning. As Ruby grew up, she began to help her mom with the chores and caring for her brother and sisters. As she delivered laundry around town, Ruby sang. 1919, George Gershwin bursts onto the music scene when Al Jolson records Swanee. Swanee,
6: how I love you, how I love you, my dear old
2: Swanee. The 11-year-old Ruby is busy delivering laundry around Pontotoc, Mississippi, singing at the top of her lungs and, most likely, performing on stages all across the country in her mind. It seemed nothing was going to stand in Ruby's way in the quest of her dream. She was too young to attend Rust High School, which required their students to be at least 15 years old to enroll. And she had no money for tuition. But Ruby's mother, Emma, somehow convinced school officials to allow 11-year-old Ruby to attend on a work scholarship. at Rust, growing into a popular, beautiful young lady. She was, in the words of one fellow student, most noted for making eyes. It would be her eyes many of her classmates would notice first when she moved north to Columbus, Ohio. Madge Guthrie was a classmate of Ruby's at Ohio State.
0: It was her eyes as much as her smile. It was a good smile, but she had sparkly eyes, and, and, and she was aware of everything, you know. You just have the, the well, impression that here is somebody who is right into the in moment. Name. Always.
6: Well, my soul got happy and i stayed all day. Mount Zion. On the journey now. Mount Zion. I'm on the journey now. Mount Zion. The weather won't take nothing. Mount Zion for my journey. as you please, we'll we'll talk about you, when I get on my knees, Mount Zion, on the journey now, Mount Zion, on the journey now, Mount
7: Zion, well it
6: wouldn't take nothing, Mount Zion, for my journey.
2: You could ask a hundred people how Ruby Elsie wound up a student at Ohio State University, learning how to read music under the guidance of Royal Hughes, who was the head of OSU's fledgling music department. Some would say fate. Some would say coincidence or luck. Both Ruby and her mother, Emma, would be quick to tell you that nothing happens by accident. However you see it, Ruby's life was about to change. One person came into her life and changed it forever.
0: It was Dr. McCracken, and he wasn't even in the music department, I don't think. I think that he just met her there, but he did recognize genius when he saw her and knew what to do about it. Didn't just say like most of us would, oh, it's too bad somebody doesn't do something about this woman, and he really did.
2: 1927, Ruby's freshman year at Rust College, George Gershwin's Someone to Watch Over Me from the Broadway musical OK would climb to number two on the charts. That same year, Dr. Charles C. McCracken, professor of school administration at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, traveled to Rust College as part of a committee appointed to study Negro schools and colleges in the South. It was during a meeting with Dr. McCoy that Dr. McCracken first heard Ruby's voice. On a warm spring day in Mississippi, the windows were open and the men were in the midst of a meeting. As usual, Ruby was singing. As her voice floated through the open office window, Dr. McCracken found it increasingly difficult to concentrate, and his companion on the trip, Dr. Walter C. John, from the Office of Education in Washington, D.C., finally threw down his pencil and said, Dr. McCoy, either we make that girl stop singing or bring her in here to sing for us. When she was asked if she minded if someone listened in on her rehearsal, her smile and warmth struck an immediate chord with Dr. McCracken. Dr. McCracken's son, Ed, was five years old when Ruby arrived in Columbus and recalls his dad's reaction the first time he met Ruby.
3: There are people who walk in and have a command appearance. They're just the dominant feature in the room. Ruby had that in her domain and as a person, and when she walked in, she was just somebody special. It was in her eyes. I mean, you you knew that she was a loving person, that she liked everybody unless they did something terrible, and then she usually accommodated that. She had that uh, sense of humor that just just was unquenchable. It just made people love her.
2: CeCe McCracken would spend the rest of the evening learning about Ruby's background, how she was doing in school, her mother's determination that Ruby get an education, and most of all, her deep desire to become a singer. Neither man felt they had the connections or the money to help Ruby realize her dream. What a shame, they thought, that nothing could be done to help such a gifted young lady. It appeared Ruby Elsie was destined to suffer the same fate as many young blacks in the South, unfulfilled dreams but CeCe McCracken was a resourceful man. Dr. McCracken knew Ruby deserved the chance to realize her dreams. He just wasn't exactly sure how to go about helping her. When Dr. McCracken asked Ruby if she'd be interested in going north to study and develop her voice, if he could arrange it, she was understandably cautious, but it was decided Ruby would talk to her mother about it and Dr. McCracken would begin laying the groundwork for Ruby Elsey to attend Ohio State University. If the thought of a poor but gifted black girl living under the cloud of Jim Crow being handpicked by George Gershwin was beyond what people could imagine, who would ever have thought a Harvard-educated professor would become her mentor and her biggest promoter? And how in the world would she get to Columbus? A black person was not going to be allowed to travel alone by train, but there was a way. David Weaver, author of Ruby Elsie, Black Diva of the 30s, tells the story.
8: Fortunately, one of the women who was the headmistress at Russ College, Ella Becker, was from Mansfield, Ohio, and she was coming to spend the summer with her family. How is she going to travel? In the Deep South, blacks could not travel on trains. The one way that blacks were able to travel was posing as Ella Becker's maid. So she carried her baggage (laughs) to the thing and uh, made it through the Deep South and made it up here to uh, Columbus, Ohio in June of 1927. Just one of many seemingly
2: insurmountable odds Dr. McCracken helped Ruby overcome. Anne Brown, who would later be cast in the role of Bess in the original production of Porgy and Bess, had a different experience.
7: I experienced difficulties, too, but not exactly of the same kind. Ruby was obviously black. I was not obviously black, and so I uh, very often did what people in those days called passing without actually meaning to do so either. But if I bought a ticket on a train to Texas and uh, they gave me a seat, I went and took it. And only if someone came up and recognized my background uh, and then reported, I use that word in quotation marks, uh, to someone at the head of the train, they might come and ask me to please get out of that train, or go to another car, or sit in the back, or something like that.
2: So Ruby now has a way to get to the Ohio State campus, and has a place to stay. Now Dr. McCracken has to hope that other members of the administration see the same promise that he saw in Ruby. There were a number of questions to be answered. Could she be admitted to the university? How was her voice? Dr. McCracken wanted to have Ruby tested by Dr. Royal Hughes. The two men lived across the street from one another on East Lane Avenue, so the morning after Ruby arrived in Columbus, Dr. Hughes crossed Lane Avenue to hear Ruby sing. In Dr. Hughes's mind, Ruby already had one strike against her.
8: She didn't actually read music. She had uh, an innate ear, um, an instinct for music, and, of course, blessed with a natural voice, but she had had no training, no musical training even. And Dr. Hughes could have just said, you know, I don't have time to mess with it." That's right, no. Dr. McCracken's wife, who was a very fine accompanist, Cleo McCracken, accompanied Ruby on this Saturday morning. Ruby dresses in her Rust College uniform, which is very much like a little sailor suit, a pleated skirt, a jumper, and and a little uh, navy tie, And proceeds to sing two spirituals, which of course I'm sure he was expecting, you know, okay. But then when she announces that her third song is going to be the Shadow Song from Meyerbeer's Dinora, the smile left his face and he he whispered to Dr. McCracken, there's no way a girl who's had no training, who can't even read music, can possibly sing a song that difficult. Ruby proceeded to sing. Hughes was so excited, he had Mrs. McCracken get up and he proceeded to a cut me ruby for the rest of the time and ask her to do these things. He was floored. She had learned the way that many other singers learned through, wrote through listening.
2: Columbus, Ohio was a very active musical town in the late 20s with orchestras, opera companies and concert series taking place regularly. Royal Hughes proceeded to call upon 30 of the most accomplished musicians in Columbus to hear Ruby perform in his home the next evening. After Ruby performed her brief program, a particular musician made a beeline for Dr. Hughes.
8: There was one woman in particular, a violinist with not the Columbus Symphony that we have today but an orchestra which back then was known also as the Columbus Symphony Orchestra. This woman was the principal violinist and was known to be very critical in her opinion of other musicians. And McCracken watched her very carefully as she was listening, and when the concert finished, McCracken said, this woman sprung up immediately, made a beeline straight to me, and I was bracing myself to hear this barrage of whatever she was going to say. And the woman pumped his hand vigorously and said, whatever you do, don't send that girl back to Mississippi. She has an extraordinary voice and the personality to sell herself to any audience.
2: The career of Ruby Elsie soprano, had begun in the living room of Dr. Royal Hughes that June evening in 1927. Sixteen years later to the day, Ruby would give her final public performance of Porgy and Bess. The table was set. Ruby began the process of learning formally the art and craft of using her innate musical gifts. She graduated in three years with a Bachelor of Science degree in Education with a major in Music, finishing at the head of her class in the Department of Music. Ruby was now a college graduate. During the summer of 1930, she gave highly successful concerts at Methodist camps and conferences in Wisconsin and New York before returning to Mississippi, where she performed six more times. Rust College headmistress Emma Becker was thrilled to see Ruby return to teach, but Ruby's mother Emma had said that Mississippi was too small for Ruby, that Ruby had earned the right to share her talent with the world. Those words would soon prove prophetic. While Ruby was giving concerts after her graduation, Dr. McCracken was still working hard on her behalf. Barely a week after Ruby graduated, Dr. McCracken was in Chicago for an educational conference, also attended by Edwin Embry of the Julius Rosenwald Fund. David Weaver.
8: The Julius Rosenwald Fund, if anyone knows anything at all about the history of the arts for black Americans, the Rosenwald Fund in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was an important organization which gave scholarships and fellowships to many gifted black performers to do advanced studies. They funded Marian Anderson for her first trip to Europe, mm-hmm. which led, to of course, to her great career that she had there in her discovery at the Salzburg Festival in 1935 by uh, Toscanini. Ruby was given a scholarship, sight unseen, by the president of the Rosewald Fund, simply on Dr. McCracken's recommendation. He happened to meet this gentleman at the educational conference in Chicago. He said, I'd like to meet with you and talk about this, this young black woman who's just graduated from, from Ohio State. And the president said, well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just so busy. I'm, the president could see that Dr. McCracken was quite deflated. And he said, I'll give you five minutes to tell me about this girl here and now. And Dr. McCracken said, I took a deep breath and proceeded to tell Ruby's entire story with two minutes to spare. <laughs> <laughs> On that alone, George Emery, the president of the Rosenwald Fund, said, we'll give her $1,200 to go abroad. And Dr. McCracken said, well, I really think she's not ready for Europe, but I think she would benefit by being in a good school. And Dr. Emery said, send her to Juilliard. The Rosenwald Fund will give her the $1,200 to go to Juilliard. Juilliard had already been set for the year. Dr. McCracken was able to set a special audition on October the 6th, the day before they were starting classes in 1930. Ruby was given a special audition before Frank Damrosch, uh, mm-hmm. who was the president of Juilliard at that time. And, of course, many people know Walter Damrosch was one of the great conductors of that era, and that was uh, Frank Damrosch's brother. So Dr. Damrosch and, and a select group of people from Juilliard heard Ruby and admitted her she started school the next day at Juilliard.
2: arrival at Juilliard coincided with one of the most artistically creative periods in American history. Known now as the Harlem Renaissance, within a week of her arrival in the Big Apple, Ruby was singing with the prestigious Rosamond Johnson Choir on Broadway. Ruby would meet three people who would figure prominently in her life while studying at Juilliard. Arthur Kaplan, a young pianist who would accompany her many times, including in a performance for Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House. Another was Ann Wiggins Brown, who, along with Ruby, Todd Duncan, and John W. Bubbles, would be handpicked by George Gershwin to perform the roles of Bess, Serena, Porgy, and Sport and Life in his groundbreaking opera, Porgy and Bess. Most important to her in her time at Juilliard was Lucia Dunham. Who would call Ruby Elsie and Anne Brown her prized pupils? Star,
6: me, Italy,
2: While Ruby studied at Juilliard with Lucia Dunham, she was also singing in the Rosamond Johnson choir in the Broadway production of Brown Buddies and Later, Fast and Furious, which saw Ruby performing with some of the top black talent of the day and also afforded her her first solo on Broadway. She would soon make her first national radio appearance with Rosamond Johnson on a radio program called Parade of the States. The time would come when radio appearances were commonplace for Ruby, but right now she was just wondering what she would do after graduation from Juilliard. Funding sources were hard to come by in the wake of the stock market crash a few years before, but Dr. Frank Damrosh, who had sat on the panel which originally auditioned and accepted Ruby into Juilliard, now came to Ruby with the news that she had received a faculty scholarship which would allow her to do postgraduate studies at Juilliard. In the summer of 1933, Rosamond Johnson was offered a contract to arrange and conduct a choir for the musical sequences in a film starring Paul Robeson. Needing an assistant music director, Johnson called upon Ruby to help him prepare for the film Emperor Jones. This film would have a huge impact on Ruby's career. Hired by the producers to write the screenplay, DeBose Hayward. DuBose Hayward and producer Dudley Murphy still needed to fill the small role of Brutus Jones' girlfriend in Emperor Jones. As they watched Ruby, they realized she had both the sweetness and strength the part needed. All of a sudden, she was Paul Robeson's co-star. While the film is today considered a classic, it was neither the film nor her role in it that most profited Ruby. It was her friendship with DeBose Hayward. DeBose Hayward suggested to Gershwin he knew someone perfect for the small but important role of Clara. At the enthusiastic recommendation of both Hayward and Rosamond Johnson, Gershwin agreed to hear the 26-year-old Ruby sing. This is what Gershwin heard. Gershwin was stunned. Ruby had several more songs ready, but Gershwin had heard all he needed. George Gershwin had found not Clara, but Serena. Not long after, Gershwin himself introduced the stars of his new opera in this rare recording.
4: Now we have a song by uh, Miss Ruby Elsie in the second act, scene one, called My Man Is Gone Now. I'm sorry, it's in scene two,
1: scene two, act one.
2: September 30th, 1935, Porgy and Bess opened to a rousing ovation. Curtain calls lasted for nearly half an hour. Ann Brown.
7: Well, it was very exciting, and uh, when we stood on the stage after the performance was finished, the applause from the audience was deafening. It was deafening.
2: Ruby had arrived. Critics called her performance of My Man's Gone Now a masterpiece of its kind. They said she distills heartbreak from this extraordinary piece of music. Porgy and Bess would propel Ruby onto the national stage with radio appearances on the Magic Key of RCA, the Mutual Broadcasting System, and two live all-Gershwin broadcasts from Lewison Stadium at City College in New York. She would wow critics with her New York recital, perform at the Apollo Theater and even sign on for an engagement at the Kit Kat Club. One of the most notable radio appearances was on Town Hall Tonight with Fred Allen.
5: And now uh, may I present Miss Ruby Elsey. Miss Elsey, I deem it quite an honor to welcome you here to our frayed microphone this evening. I've never had the pleasure of hearing you sing until today. I missed you and Porgy and Bess. And then uh, I went by, uh, I intended to go to see the show, but I kept putting it off and finally the guild got up on its high horse and just said, either you come over here or we're closing the show up. <laughs> and I couldn't get over there and they went ahead with, the, you know how the guild is. <laughs> and that is why <laughs> when the guild and I pass these days, we never nod. If you ever <laughs> see me passing the guild, you will notice the guild especially doesn't nod. But uh, Miss Elsie, I, do uh, uh, you want to tell us something about yourself? You were uh, besides Porgy and Bess, you were, uh, you've also graduated from the Juilliard School, haven't you?
9: Yes, I did. I came up from, uh, I came from Ohio State here. I finished Ohio State in that 1930. Uh-huh. I went there on a scholarship given to me by Dr. C. C. McCracken.
5: At Ohio State. Uh
9: huh. And I left. I went to Ohio State from Rust College. I worked my way through Rust College. If you ever what happened to come to my house you notice I wouldn't eat on tablecloths because that's what I did wash tablecloths. To get too so,
5: so now you're cured, huh? Yeah you know you're you're oil oilcloth. <laughs> you get
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Well, I don't know. It'd be terrible to to, to to come back in later life as a spirit and come in your house with a tablecloth on and there you <laughs> yeah. are you I wouldn't prob- pay any attention I to me.
6: Start washing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> But I, uh, you are—you've also sung with Mr. Robson too, haven't you? Well, I played often him in uh, *The Emperor Jones*. Emperor Jones here picture. in this country? Picture, yes. Oh, in the picture. picture. Uh, Mr. Ro- Robson's in Europe now, isn't he? he? I read about him occasionally, gadding about Russia and one place or another <laughs> with his right. earmuffs on, and. Uh, <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, one of the boys told me that you this week are appearing at the Apollo Theater in uh, Harlem. Is that yes, right? On 125th Street. On You Street. Right. You have another show there tonight, another too? I show
6: tonight. Well, then,
5: we better just get going. What are you going to sing for us tonight?
6: Summertime from Poggy and Best.
5: Summertime from Poggy and Best. Thank you.
2: Porgy and Best would be revived in the late thirties for a short run on the west coast before extreme weather stranded the company in San Francisco, putting a halt to the planned tour and ruining the producer financially. Finally, in 1932, a third attempt to mount what would be a shortened and much less expensive production of Porgy and Best and to take it on tour, would succeed. Ruby Elsie would be cast in the role of Serena for all three productions. The first one, of course, launched her performing career. The third one would mark the untimely ending of it. Ruby began to feel irritable and moody during the tour, and her stamina was dropping. By the time the company reached Detroit, she was ready to see a doctor. Ruby had a benign uterine tumor, which would need to be removed. Ruby was not willing to drop out of the tour, so she decided to postpone surgery until the show finished its run. The tour wrapped up in Denver, Saturday, June 19, 1943. Emma, Ruby's husband Jack, and Ruby set out for Detroit, where the operation could finally be performed, and Ruby hoped she would get her energy back. As they prepared to take her to the operating room the next morning, it was fitting that she sang. She vocalized a little bit, gave her mama a smile, and hopped up on the gurney to head to the operating room. Two hours later, Ruby was gone. news of Ruby's death spread quickly in major newspapers across the country, and in the entertainment industry publication known as Variety, reaching her Porgy and Bess castmates, her hometown, and friends across the country.
6: Oh, my dear mother, don't you weep when I'm gone.
2: Emma had notified the McCracken family immediately. But they were traveling and would not know of Ruby's death until after the funeral services had been held. It was a loss Dr. McCracken would never get over. In one publication, the editors wrote, Her aspect of the race question was one of the sanest and most sincere we have ever known. In a gesture of respect that reflected that sentiment, Ruby Elsie was the first black person buried in the then-whites-only central portion of Pontotoc City Cemetery less than 50 yards from the front gate. At her funeral service at the McDonald Methodist Church in Pontotoc, blacks and whites alike filled the church, overflowing into the churchyard.
6: Weep when
2: As it had been all of her life, Ruby Elsie was bringing people of both races together in harmony. Now in the church where she had first raised her incredible God-given voice in praise, Ruby Elsie had come home again.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Ruby Elsie. And you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is Saturday, uh, March 8th, and live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan African Journal. Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of uh, today's program.
7: Lost your love away from me. Took my hope. Look at me now.
6: Look at me!
7: faith.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that is the sound of Detroit's own Motown music, uh, The Supremes uh, with the track and title, Love is Here, but Now You're Gone. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we're continuing our International Women's History Month programming. And uh, in this final segment, we listen to a documentary. On uh, the legendary Billie Holiday, uh, this is centered around her uh, singing the track entitled Strange Fute uh, that was uh, written by Robert Paul, that discussed the uh, lynching of uh, African people in the United States. Let's listen in to this documentary.
10: Mm.
11: Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the
12: poplar trees. Strange Fruit is a song about a black man being hung, lynched and it's very dramatic, especially the way Billie Holiday did it.
13: The song Strange Fruit caused such controversy when it was first heard that music publishers didn't want to touch it and radio stations refused to air it.
10: Music has always gone along with great movements. There are no great movements that do not have music. Even as early as this song was, it was helping to create the music for a movement.
5: Autograph recording keeps advancing steadily as modern engineering skill brings to it the latest developments in sound reproduction.
12: It was the year 1939. Billie Holiday came into my shop one day. To, I had a record shop, Commodore Music Shop. She came into the store very unhappy that Columbia Records was hesitating and didn't really want to record "Strange Fruit." "Strange Fruit" is a very special song, and you wouldn't look for it to be a big selling record and a record company like Columbia Records wanted big sellers and Billy recorded for them and uh, they didn't think Strange Fruit would be a commercial success we set the date I used the band that accompanied her at the Cafe Society where she was performing the song and. The rest was history. It's so striking and important, a song, that you set the mood for it. I had the the pianist uh, play like an interlude. In fact, I put it on the label. Interlude by Sonny White. And Billy comes in and does her stuff.
6: Southern trees Bear a strange fruit Blood on
7: the leaves
6: And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar tree
9: thought that Billie Holiday was born in Baltimore but she was actually born in Philadelphia but she was raised in Baltimore as a young teenager she came up to Harlem at that time many many people were moving to northern cities and she was one of them she started working in Harlem nightclubs, singing when she first encountered strange fruit she was in her very early 20s at the time Billie Holiday was kind of reluctant to sing it. Some people have said she was reluctant to sing it because she didn't know what it meant, and that's an argument that I find offensive. Um, I think she was reluctant to sing it because it brought up the kinds of harsh images that she didn't want to necessarily put out there. It was very painful and very difficult, but she was absolutely convinced of the importance of recording the song, and she always said that from the very beginning. There's no evidence that Billie Holiday actually saw a lynching, but she would have grown up with a lore of lynching. Uh, It was utterly impossible for her as a black woman, particularly a black woman living in Harlem at that time, not to know about lynching. So she didn't really have to witness it firsthand to be very sensitive to that crime, that horrendous crime.
10: You hung somebody. You had no real evidence that they had done anything, but you hung them. You even brought a crowd in to enjoy this event. Then you would not only hang them by the neck, but you wanted to rip open their bodies and did so. You burned them to death, you put a fire under them. Often you skinned their very faces And this was met with applause. The crowd loved it. They were anxious to do it, all right? And uh, 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 men teaching their sons that this is what you do to them, right? This is, uh, uh, I don't know any kind of savagery uh, that is worse than this.
14: Lynchings were done by common people, common people who grew up believing that black people were not human, that they didn't deserve the same kind of rights and privileges as everyone else, and so taking their life made very little difference. And then they went and did their task, and then they went home and had fried chicken and scratched the puppy behind the ears and kissed the grandchildren and went to church.
10: How could you have Christianity? How could you have any form of religion, except these people were Christian? How could they even ask God to forgive them for such acts that they perpetrated knowingly, planned.
9: We see lynching emerging on the national scene as a way of policing black communities as early as 1890s, right after Reconstruction, when there's a sense that black people are making too many political and economic gains. Lynching was often used as a mean to contain and control a community that was overstepping its bounds politically and economically. But the reason given for lynching was that it was because of a rape of a white woman. Lynchings were often accompanied by the mutilation of the black body, the severing of the sex organs of the lynching victim. That's something that Americans are fascinated by and ashamed of and quite afraid of, not just for its racial implications, but for the implications around sexuality. Those are the hidden scripts behind every lynching photograph or lynching story, lynching
11: poem. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, and the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, For the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for a tree to drop, here is a strange bitter crop.
13: When Billie Holiday first encounters Strange Fruit, she is performing at Café Society, New York's first truly integrated nightclub outside of Harlem. Located in Sheridan Square, in the heart of New York's Greenwich Village, the club is a novel social experiment. It is founded in 1938 by Barney Josephson, a former shoe salesman. Café Society parodies the affectations of so-called high society. Customers are greeted by doormen wearing rags and playful murals adorn the walls. Yet it draws some of the most important entertainers of its era and is visited by luminaries ranging from Paul Robeson to Eleanor Roosevelt.
8: What Cafe Society was, was a, a kind of merger in 1930s New York of European cabaret traditions, the traditions of Brecht and Vile that come out of Berlin and Vienna and Paris of the 1930s, and on the other hand, Afro-American jazz clubs of New York. In some ways, Strange Fruit was a kind of product of those two traditions coming together.
9: By the time Billie Holiday records Strange Fruit, it enters into the public discourse in both literature and painting about lynching.
8: Strange Fruit can be seen not as the only work about lynching and I think that it brings together in a kind of powerful way what a number of other artists have been trying to do. In
13: 1935 and 36, the New York chapter of the NAACP organizes two shows of visual artwork addressing the subject of lynching. The artists are black, white and Asian and their efforts are part of a long history of anti-lynching activity.
9: The anti-lynching movement had been going on for some time before the recording of Strange Fruit. There were anti-lynching campaigns throughout the United States Strange Fruit became not just a song of protest, but a kind of elegiac song, a song of mourning. And it was a song that also sparked a kind of activism for black communities.
14: There had been legislation introduced into Congress on many occasions to make lynching a federal offense. And each and every time it was filibustered or ruled over by Southern legislators. During a
13: 1940 effort to promote passage of a federal anti-lynching bill, the lyrics of Strange Fruit are sent to every member of Congress. Neither this tactic nor years of intensive lobbying by the NAACP ever succeed. Federal anti-lynching legislation is never written into law.
9: Strange Fruit became a song that's been claimed by African-Americans as part of an artistic tradition that's both beautiful, yet one born in protest that was probably Billie Holiday's greatest contribution. She didn't write the song, but she certainly was a great communicator of that message.
11: I don't remember exactly when I heard Strange Fruit," but it caused a sensation in the neighborhood because they were lynching people in the South and she dared to sing about it.
15: This song became Billie's in the sense that she had to go she had to sing in places that she couldn't go in the front door. She could play at clubs that she couldn't sit at the table. Her mother and nobody could come, you know, and sit there and watch her. She had to go to back doors, you know. She couldn't live in the hotels with the white musicians. So I think she understood something about racism.
4: I think the song itself is a great song, and I think it is as great as it is because Billy has taken that material. And being familiar, deeply familiar, with the whole social context, the history, and uh, you know, the living confirmation of that, she puts it on, you know, a whole other level.
15: Got to be Billie Holiday's piece, Strange Fruit. Nobody, uh, never thought to think about the lyricist or the composer. You know, initially, I tell you the truth, I thought a black person had written it. And it was my curiosity about Billie Holiday singing this song and where did these lyrics come from and this haunting music. And I wanted to find out who was this person? Was he black or white? And uh, amazingly, I found out not only was he white, he was (laughs) Jewish-American.
13: It is a Jewish school teacher from the Bronx who writes Strange Fruits. His name is Abel Mirapol, but he uses the pseudonym of Lewis Allen for his writing. Born in 1903 as the son of Russian immigrants, Mirapol grows up in the Bronx and graduates from DeWitt Clinton High School in 1921. He goes on to study at the City College of New York, earns a master's degree from Harvard in 1926 and returns to DeWitt Clinton as an English teacher the following year.
12: I first met Abel Mirapol when I got my first teaching appointment. I had joined the teachers' union, and the, uh, the teachers' union people in the school were really the, the greatest. They were the brightest and the, the most uh, active people. And so it was uh, really a, a great time don't marry a teacher unless he can
3: feature a button from local five as loving he's able he's better than gable and Boy, he's got plenty of jive this was a, a rather well-known song that abel did
0: he wrote words he wrote music he you know just all around and he was he was a, a real fun guy to be with he was just delightful We were not unaware of what was going on in the South, even though we lived in the Bronx. We
10: were very much aware, very Very much aware.
0: And the Teachers Union was very aware.
3: The 1930s is a period of great cultural uh, ferment and upheaval. This was the period in which the Communist Party was achieving a great deal of significance because it's a combination of economic depression, the rise of fascism, the Spanish Civil War, all of these together provide a very fertile opportunity for the Communist Party to spread its message. There were a significant number of communists among the Teachers Union, but by no means was it a communist organization. The fight against fascism was a focal point and I think brought many people into activity in the progressive movement at that time that had not been before. All of this has not only a political context, but a cultural and entertainment context as well. There was, for example, an institution known as TAC, Cabaret TAC, the Theater Arts Committee, and this brought... The, the, the outstanding talents of the uh, theatrical community together, and Abel played a very important role in those activities. So when it came to something like Strange Fruit that is so deeply felt, this is what came out of him. Abel wrote Strange Fruit as a poem. It was originally published in the Teachers Union publication
12: and later became the song. It was sometime in the late 30s.
0: That's right. We heard straight... For the
12: middle 30s even, you know, when I... because I was... I'm
0: sorry. It was written in the late 30s. Yeah, it was
5: written... So
0: it was... Whenever uh, those first performances were in... um, At the the Teachers Union meeting... At the Teachers Union meeting. This was the kind of thing that when you heard, you couldn't applaud at first. It was just so, so gripping.
3: I consider Abel as a pioneer. The fact that he could write the song that really became the anthem on lynching and that it should come from the pen of a Jewish writer I think
16: is is very significant and is symbolic of, of that period. My father was most proud of Strange Fruit. Of all the things he ever did Uh, he was most proud of that
17: he was a very gentle man and a very humorous uh, person who was really not comfortable in public Uh, he was ill at ease but he felt things very deeply and very passionately and he saw
16: a photograph of a lynching and it then inspired him to write the poem maybe it was all up here you know, but he said a picture inspired it.
13: Cafe Society's publicist, Here Strange Fruit, performed at one of the Theater Arts Committee cabarets. He subsequently arranges a meeting at Cafe Society between Barney Josephson, Abel Mirapol, and Billie Holiday. Mirapol plays the song for Holiday, and with encouragement from Josephson, she agrees to perform it. It is February 1939.
18: One of the amazing things to me about Mirapol writing Strange Fruit and getting it to Billie Holiday and then having it last the way it has as a song of racial protest is is not that um, a Jewish person got a Jewish written song to a black performer because that had been going on for decades at that point, but that the terms of that meeting were so different than they had ever been before.
4: There's this sense of the Jewish American being the middleman between the public, which has limited tolerance for blacks as a people, but kind of likes some of the cultural products of it, and the people and the culture and the music of, of black America, which kind of makes Strange Fruit really different. It's really different because what this Jewish American musician is being a middleman for is something quite militant.
18: There was a whole industry that we now call Tin Pan Alley, which was very much tied up with Jewish songwriters writing music, which lots of people heard as black music, Um, even if the performer was white, the songwriter was white, all the players on the song were white, and so on. There's a number of important Jewish composers of the era, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Harold Arlen, who made their real names by writing music that enough people identified as sounding black that it became sort of incorporated into the body of black music. That music stretches from Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band in 1911, 1912, it becomes a big hit, up through Porgy and Bess in 1935, Gershwin's folk opera. The truly new thing uh, about Strange Fruit, I think, is that those kinds of complicated dynamics have now given way to a new kind of complicated dynamics, which are much more uh, about popular front politics, about finding ways to give voice to racial protest, to social opposition to the dominant order, which none of the songwriters previously had even touched on.
4: Through Strange Fruit, you see Billie Holiday actually making a step towards... You know the kind of energy that you're sensing from a uh, Jimi Hendrix or a lot of the music in the '70s. Um, it's a, it's the first step away from entertainment and towards expressing something a little more harder-edged, more true to the negative side of um, being black and living in America.
3: Strange Fruit immediately spread the mark of a great song is its ability to be sung in slightly different ways by different people. Billie Holiday made it world famous, but many other people sang it. I sang it on occasion. I I can't, I don't have any voice left at age 80. Southern trees have a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves, blood at the root. Black blotties swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. <laughs> Great song. In March 1940...
13: Abel Mirapol is called before New York State's Rap-Coudre Committee, which is investigating communism in the schools. He is asked whether the Communist Party commissioned him to write the songs.
3: The rap Committee would consider Anything having to do with lynching or with uh, any aspect of uh, racism to be instigated by the communists. Because that was, that was part of the, uh, uh, that went with the territory at that time. If you, if you uh, if you've raised your voice against lynching or you raised your voice against discrimination, you were accused of being a communist. That didn't change for a number of years. Uh, it was true of Martin Luther King Jr., and it was true in the 60s as well, and it's true in, the, in the later periods.
13: Only three months after its release, Billie Holiday's recording of Strange Fruit reaches number 16 on the popular music charts. This is an unusually high ranking for a song which is banned by radio stations who we'll consider it too controversial. Meanwhile, other singers start to develop interest in strange fruit.
6: There a strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood
3: at the root. And
10: I was a teenager. Josh White was the first uh, African-American folk singer that I knew. And with that song, it was the first time that I had heard music and such grotesque destruction of life go together.
13: In 1950, Josh White is called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. In his testimony on communist infiltration in minority groups, he reads the lyrics of Strange Fruit into the congressional record. He is subsequently attacked from both flanks. The left accuses him of capitulating to the committee. The right disbelieves his avowed patriotism. His career never entirely recovers. Strange Fruit becomes Abel Maripol's most famous composition. Yet he writes literally thousands of other poems, librettos, plays, scripts, and songs.
17: He had a studio, which, uh, or a writing studio, which was a tremendous mess. Uh, every time I'd walk in, he'd look up at me, look at the mess, and say, I'm going to clean this up. And he said that for his entire life and never did. In
13: 1944, after 18 years of high school teaching, Mirapol leaves New York and moves to Hollywood to try his hand at writing for the screen, then returns back east six years later, just ahead of the Hollywood Red Scare. During this period, he writes the lyrics to the song The House I Live In, a patriotic anthem on racial harmony with music by Earl Robinson. In 1945, it is made into a film short starring Frank Sinatra. The
3: house I live in, a plot of earth, a street a grocer and the butcher and the people that I meet The children in the playground He always
16: said that he wrote it not because he was naive enough to think that it was the way America actually was but it was the way America should be and could be based on its ideals. The
6: place I
3: work
16: in The worker at my side What's fascinating about that is they leave out the verse. The house I live in, my neighbor's white and black. They leave that out, and my father was furious about that.
6: And the
3: handshake, the air of feeling free and the right to speak my mind out, that's
16: America. In fact, there's a story. My father and mother, Anna and Abel, when this film came on and when he saw that they'd left out the verse, he started screaming, shit, shit, they ruined my song. They were thrown out of the theater.
6: That's America to me. In
13: 1946, shortly after the film wins an Academy Award, the idealism of the house I live in is overshadowed by an incident near Monroe, Georgia, more reminiscent of strange fruit.
14: We're going down the road now toward the lynch line. I want you to, uh, to think about it. it's, it's a hot summer day. You're going home, you're with your wife, you're with your friends. You're getting close to home now. You're coming this way. The road is probably a dirt road. All the windows in the car roll down, and there's a trail of dust behind. Then we round the curve, and what you're gonna see ahead is gonna be 25 to 50 unmasked men with rifles right here. And you know what's getting ready to happen. You know that the best you're gonna come out with is a beating. And all of a sudden you joy and happiness now is stark terror. There's not a friendly face there.
12: On July 25th, 1946, four African Americans, George and May Mary Darcy, Dorothy and Roger Malcolm, were killed by a lynch mob at the Morris Ford Bridge, 60 miles east of Atlanta. They were gunned down by a mob of white men, shot hundreds of times in broad daylight, and these killings were never prosecuted. Those responsible were never convicted. It was a national story back when it happened. President Truman was outraged by this incident, and it led to important changes.
13: The Moore's Ford incident is the first lynching to draw nationwide attention. In the years following the release of *Strange Fruit*,
10: the world found out if they didn't already know what was happening here in the South with all of this lynching being going on. Uh, and, and it happened at a time. This will happen. George Dorsey had served in World War II, and. He got three letters of accommodation from the Army once he came out. And it was sad that he lived less than 10 months after he was discharged from the service back home. You know, he done made it alive all through the war, and then he come back home to be killed.
13: A year later, in 1947, Truman desegregates the military. Yet, as America settles into post-war prosperity, the Cold War begins, and anti-communism grows in strength.
16: The hatred, the use of hysteria to control uh, those kinds of um, things—in effect, the lynch, the rule of the lynch mob—is very similar to the kind of stuff that occurred as communists were demonized and marginalized out of the political process. Abel and Ann Mirapol are my parents. They technically are my adoptive parents, because I didn't meet them till I was 10 years old. My
17: brother, Michael, and I were adopted by Abel and Ann Mirapol. My original birth
16: parents were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. They were arrested in 1950 when I was seven. say for a crime they didn't commit supposedly stealing the secret of the atom bomb but that's you know that's sort of a different issue.
17: Abel and Ann Mirapol volunteered to take us in after my parents arrest but we're told that as long as my parents were alive that that was they shouldn't we wouldn't be with people who my parents
16: didn't know. I spent three years with family and friends and sometime in a shelter, in fact. And then uh, they were executed in June of 1953. Right after that, the lawyer, Emanuel Block, who became our legal guardian by their wills, began searching for home for us. And um, Abel and Anne were recommended to him
17: after the execution, they came forward again. We were introduced to them at a Christmas party, uh, Christmas Eve uh, in 1953, uh, at uh, Du Bois' house. They drove us home that evening, and within a few weeks, uh, we started living with them. Abel and Ann were progressive activists, members of the Communist Party in the 30s, though they never would admit that publicly to anybody, and probably if, if their ghosts were looking down on me today, they, prob- they might even be mad at me for saying it. They had two children, one who was gonna be named Louis, and one who was gonna be named Alan but they they were going to have two children, but they were stillborn. They had picked out the name, so they never were born alive. So that's where the name Lewis Allen came from. The thing that I immediately was drawn to
16: was he had the most unbelievable sense of humor.
17: He was always coming up with little ditties, uh, making little jokes. He sort of had a real sense, a verbal sense of the absurd. We did fun things together. They had this old reel-to-reel tape recorder.
6: Now,
9: folks, we will have Abel say a few
0: words.
9: (coughs) Thank you, Abel. That was a very nice speech. This is station M-E-E-R-O-P-O-L. Brought to you by the hard-boiled egg dealers of New York City, Incorporated. And now we give you Michael Mirapol.
16: How did the funniest man I ever knew, Abel Mirapol, have such a dark consciousness to write a poem like Strange Fruit and then set it to music in such a haunting melody. My father was not only one of the funniest people, he was also one of the angriest people. In
13: 1956, Doubleday and Company publishes Billie Holiday's ghost-written autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues. In it, Holiday implies that Mirapol wrote the lyrics to the song for her and that the arrangement and music were done by her and Sonny White.
16: My father was just absolutely livid. He got a lawyer to get the publisher to agree to take it out of subsequent editions.
13: In dozens of letters between Mirapol, his lawyer, and Doubleday, the authorship of Strange Fruit is hotly contested. I wrote both the words and the music of Strange Fruit fully a year or more, before Billie Holiday sang it, Mirapol insists. It was first sung by my wife, Anne Allen, at a performance of the Theater Arts Committee. I admire Billie Holiday's rendition of the song tremendously and Sonny White's wonderful interpretation, but I insist on the truth. I wrote Strange Fruit because I hate lynching and I hate injustice, and I hate the people who perpetuate it. Billie Holiday
9: sang Strange Fruit during her tours in Europe at a time when other African-American artists and intellectuals were agreeing to tone down their criticism of the United States. McCarthy era, during that time, she kept singing that song. And now a little tune
0: written especially for me, Strange Fruit.
11: From the poplar trees
7: Pastoral scene Of the gallant south The bulging eyes And the twisted mouth
0: Scent of magnolia
7: Sweet and fresh Then
6: the sudden smell Of burning flesh Here is a fruit For the crows to pluck For the rain to gather For the wind to stock For the sun to rock For the trees to dry
0: Here is a strange
6: and bitter cry.
13: Less than a year after her 1958 appearance on BBC television, Billie Holiday dies at the age of 44.
11: Strange Fruit made a great difference in uh, her life and in mine. If I hadn't heard her sing Strange Fruit, I wouldn't have known what social was.
13: During the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement assumes its own anthem. Strange Fruit is heard less frequently, but is not forgotten. Nina Simone and Carmen McRae released their own interpretations of the song.
11: In the 60s, there were many people who were singing protest songs. Strange Fruit helped in the movement freedom, and sanctity.
17: It's very easy to empathize with, with people who are oppressed. Um, and uh, in some ways, that is the connection uh, that was felt uh, by so many Jews who got involved in the civil rights movement.
7: It was one of the songs that had had, well, an earlier existence in the, in the 30s and then an existence in terms of the civil rights movement in the states in the mid-60s. And then is revived again in the UK in the 70s as part of the Rock Against Racism movement.
13: It wasn't just a sort of American phenomenon, it became part of an international
11: phenomenon.
13: In the 1980s, Abel Mirapol starts to suffer from Alzheimer's disease.
16: Well, I would play Strange Fruit for him and sometimes I'd sing it for him, but mostly I'd play the record for him. I think it was just about the last thing he recognized. He also used to absolutely love the fact that every once in a while he'd find himself in an anthology of Negro composers.
13: He dies in a Jewish nursing home near Springfield, Massachusetts in 1986. At the age of 83, Strange Fruit is performed at his funeral by Honey Kazoy, one of his school teacher colleagues.